You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. All right, welcome church. Good morning. I'm so glad you made it on a day that was interesting driving to work this morning. My uh, son and Tomas' son and a few other boys are up on Carson Pass backpacking right now, getting destroyed. But I think that's a character builder, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. So, But um, I just I appreciate that. I love the rain. It's going to make fire season a little bit better for us. So, um, Yeah, first thing I wanted to do, actually, first thing I want to do is wish, wish uh, Randy Immer a happy birthday. I don't know if Randy is right. I don't see him out there, but anyways, he's, uh, he's 70. He says he goes backwards to 35 now, so um, happy birthday. I love, that man is awesome. He's got such an amazing heart for God. I just appreciate him so much. And the other thing that I wanted to do is I just want to give some honor to <clears throat> Kim Mindler, who is um, our secretary here at church, and, and I just, I appreciate that. Kim, like, we, when we're going to preach, we send our notes to her, and like, whatever it is, she creates this, you know, she creates what you have in front of you on the notes, but I didn't send that to her. She just does that. And um, I send her about 12 pages of how I put mine out, and so she has to cut and do all that stuff, and it's just, I'm like, do you need anything else? She's like, no, nah, I got it. It's cool. And then, you know, Joe, his, uh, his preach notes are usually like a few lines with a bunch of chicken scratch, and so she makes the whole thing out of that, which <laughs> is awesome as well. And Matt, <laughs> it's true. Matt's notes have been a completely blank page before because there's so much information. So I just, uh, <laughs> remember that? Yeah. I just, uh, I want to honor her for that today. I just, it's an unsung job. I, we, I just, I very much appreciate that. So. Thanks, Kim. Sorry if I embarrassed you. So today's topic, we're in uh, Genesis or the book of beginnings. Uh, we've been here 43 weeks, and now this is week 44 with a few other sermons mixed in. And that, that just goes to show that there is so much that is here. Again, this is what, um, we, you know, we're in the Old Testament, but remember back then there was no such thing as the Old Testament. This would have been the Torah or the sacred writings. So the sacred learnings, that's what they would have known that. And we call it the Old Testament. We put in chapter and verse. We put in the title notations so that we can more easily get to where we're going to head and read. So just as a reminder, um, today I, I called this one Pride and Character. It's not Pride and Prejudice. It's Pride and Character. Um, the title of the actual chapter that they put in there was the Silver Cup. But what I did was I extrapolated out of this um, a couple of things that, that are important to deal with. And as I was given the topic, it's very interesting because I, I read the chapter and I'm like, man, there's not much here. Which, shame on me, and it, it seems like each time that I'm given a topic to preach on, uh, you know, especially just like, okay, we're going to preach on w- whatever uh, chapter and verse it is, and I'm like, okay, I'll read through it, and I'm like, okay, like, there's, there may be a message in there, but I tell you what, when you start diving in, and we start reading, there are volumes and volumes of commentary written on just Genesis. I mean, it's, it's crazy. They will tear apart every single verse, and there's multiple authors that do that, and so... When you really, truly dive in and study the Word of God, that illumination is spectacular for me because I I come out going, there is so much here, how do I even put this into 45 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it may be? I don't know what it was on the last one, but your test case number two, because Thursday nights, since we don't preach on Thursday nights, last last service was a test case. So, But anyways, I'm so grateful that the illumination exists of God's Word. There's so much there. It comes alive. And when we really dig in deep, we find so much more meaning than if we're just reading through it and kind of glossing over it. And that, that for me, is um, 
I, like I said, spectacular. I love that. It's a surprise every time. And so in, in looking at that, I, I began to read commentary, and I'm like, okay. Uh, and, and the words pride and character came to me. No, and it wasn't because we're doing, you know, our, our home group launches on, you know, Christian character. That actually wasn't it. It just organically came up. That was, that was God, and he said, no, this is, this is what you're going to preach on. And so um, where it says the, uh, the silver cup, I, I have replaced, I'm not replacing God's word. Remember, we put that silver cup word in there. But what I'm saying is, is the title of mine essentially uh, for the next little bit is Joseph testing his brothers or the setup, what I would call the setup. This is going to be a really, really big test that his brothers can either flee and fail or stay and pass. And it really becomes illuminated and very amazing. So we're going to start in 44 verse 1. It says, then he commanded the steward of his house, this is Joseph speaking, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So if we reach back last week, the, the brothers had just had a feast with Joseph and they were headed back with the grain that they had bought with money that is now back in their sack along with a silver cup that was planted there. So um, it's interesting because now we see what the real setup here is. Because let's recall back in the last chapter, their money was back in their sacks, right? Which was reasonable. The servant said, well, God has clearly blessed you because he put your money back in there, right? Would, would God bless them with a stolen item? Probably not. Actually, I'm sure not. And so this is the real, this is where that, that test actually comes in. Because he said, and put the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. Here we have Joseph setting up his brothers for what is an extremely large test. At this point, we notice that he specifically singles out Benjamin, right? The youngest of the brothers. Could have picked any one of the brothers, but he specifically singled out Benjamin. And we'll get a little bit more into that. Recall that Benjamin was his only full brother, right? It was Joseph and Benjamin came from Rachel. Rachel was the apple of Jacob's eye. He was the, she was the one that he originally was after to be married. She was the one that he indentured himself to Laban for years and years and years. And then he, Laban pulled the old switcheroo and he had to indenture himself more. So it's really important to understand how important that Benjamin becomes because at this point, Joseph is gone and his father doesn't have Joseph anymore, right? You with me? At this point, we notice that he singles out Benjamin. It just, it really, it sets the importance of how Benjamin is now. Because again, um, we'll get into it more, but Joseph was a favorite. And now that Joseph's gone, with that, that makes sense that now Benjamin from, from that same marriage actually becomes the favorite. Why would they not pick the oldest for the cup? Wouldn't it make sense to, to pick off the, who would be the one who gets the blessing, right? That would be Reuben. Reuben was the oldest. He was the firstborn. And in this culture, the firstborn was to receive the bulk of the blessing, all the, all the stuff that came when his, when his father passed away, right? Why wouldn't, they, why wouldn't they pick on Reuben? And it's because, obviously, Joseph knows the importance at this point in time. He knew that he was loved by his father overwhelmingly. And he knows that because Benjamin is the only one left from that lineage that his father values Benjamin immensely. And so that's, that's part of the reason there. So this, this sets up the perfect test that conditions would be right again for another betrayal. We'll need to recall back to the previous betrayal when we talk about that. But the brothers have the opportunity to betray 
that brother from the same lineage as Joseph yet again. And they could probably get away with it. Not in God's sight, but they could probably get away with it in Pharaoh's sight. And if they never told their father, like they hadn't about Joseph, they might get away with it there. Verse 3 says, As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, referring to the cup, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. This is interesting. Joseph practicing divination? Bible actually doesn't say that Joseph practices divination. However, he does come from, he's in a culture right now that that is actually paramount with them. The Egyptian culture, you know, they're, 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 they very much believe in seeing the future. So he has this beautiful silver cup and that's his cup of divination. But that's because he was very, very high up in, in the hierarchy of the Egyptian culture. He's, he's second only to Pharaoh at this point, right? He's essentially Pharaoh's, his right hand. And so, but he's making a point with this. He's actually making a point because it would be that the brothers know the value of, of this. They know the value of that cup of divination. They just ate dinner with him last night or the previous night before, before they were sent on their way. And so they would have seen that at his table. They would have known that value. You have done evil things. Um, just as an aside, the, the, the practice of divination gets, gets addressed in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy later on. But again, we're, we don't see any evidence of Joseph practicing divination. I believe that this was actually just part of the plan. They would have seen far more value in that cup than there was the money. And again, they could, there could be justification that, okay, well, God put the money back into your sacks. He was going to bless you. But God certainly did not put that silver cup back into your sack. That makes you a thief. And that's where the trap is being set at this point in time. So it says, when he overtook them, he spoke to them those words. That's what he just referred to. They said to him, they the brothers, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in, our, in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan, referring to the previous trip. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be my Lord's servants. He said, he, uh, the, the uh, Joseph's servant said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Hang on to that one. Then, let each, then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And as he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Do you see the setup here? Those brothers, when they were, when they were referring to the servant, were absolutely 100% sure that they were not guilty. They knew it. They were like, there's no way. And we're so confident that whoever stole your cup shall be put to death. And we will be indentured as your servants for life. That's how confident they were. But they didn't know it was about to happen. And so they were certain of their innocence. They tried to solidify their innocence by referring to the previous time, the previous trip, where they said, well, but we brought the money back. Certainly, and that's where the trap got better because of the cup that was put in there. And they offered whoever the offender was their life. 
right? But it's interesting because Joseph's servant stayed fixed on Benjamin alone because he would be the ultimate trap, right? And so first part was that the order of searching through the sacks was actually very calculated. It says that he started with the youngest and, uh, excuse me, started with the oldest, thanks for the correction, and finished with the youngest. And they had to be, again, remember they got sat at the table in the previous chapter by oldest to youngest. They're like, how does he know? It's not like they said, I'm the oldest brother and we, you know, we go down, 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 like that. And so they're like, okay, something's clearly going on here. They're, they're believing that he may be, you know, he may be able to see the future. He may be some sort of diviner. That's not the case, but just because Joseph knows the history, it's his, it's his brothers. And so that, that portion of it is, is very interesting that they're like, okay, how does he know this? But when they took down each man's sack and they opened each person's sack, imagine how when they didn't find the cup in number one through nine, they were getting confident. They're like, told you, cup's not here. Now, the money's there, but clearly God blessed us just as he did in the last time. That's my own thing. I did, that's not scriptural, but, but it could have been what they were thinking, but they were getting more and more confident. They're like, okay, so we're going to be exonerated. And then Benjamin's sack is opened and the cup is in there. And imagine how they feel. They're like, and then when they, they knew what they had just offered, they offered his life and they offered their lives as in servitude his life to be sacrificed. Can you imagine the feeling? The trap just gets better and better. But this is where we begin to see a little bit of, a little bit of character change in them. So I'm going to go back in a minute, but I want to I take a note real quick. And it says that every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Did you read the part where he, he freed everybody else? He, he said, no, I'll take Benjamin and you're free to go. They didn't have to go back to the city to go face Joseph. They were free to go. This is the first part of the trap, right? Because Joseph was like, well, I guess if they're going to stay the same and their character's not going to change, then they'll just let me have Benjamin and they'll take off. They're scot-free at this point. But they chose to go back with their brother. Very interesting. I read right over that the first time. So in order to, to figure out where all this pride comes from from the brothers, we've got to go back to to the roots. We'll go back to Joseph's dreams. And we've, we've been through this before, but it was several weeks ago. So in Genesis 37, it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And those are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing a flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wife. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So here we have the 17-year-old kid who is out there watching over his older brothers and he's bringing bad reports back to his dad. This right here is a recipe for your brothers to hate you, right? We tell, you know, we're, as parents, we're like, okay, don't tattle on your brothers. I mean, I want to know the truth and I want to know all that, but like tattling is not a good thing. It's going to make them, but this is right here. This is the start of it. And verse three there says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age. Again, recall that Rachel was his chosen wife and Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel. So it would be conceivable to think that he would have expected Rachel should have been my wife had Laban, you know, um, owned up to the, to the deal that we first made. And Joseph may possibly have been my first son. That clearly wasn't God's plan as we read it and see. But I would think that those, those thoughts could possibly be going through his head. And so when he refers to him like that, 
it makes the brothers even more jealous and even more mad. And it says he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even say a nice word to him ever. They hated him. That pride was welling up. What about this kid? What is it about him? Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. First bad idea. When your brothers don't like you, don't tell them this dream. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Hear this dream that I have dreamed, O oh dear brothers of mine. Behold, we were binding sheaves in a field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. You're going to bow down to me. How's that going over at this point? And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream, and he told his brothers again and said, second bad idea, I have dreamed another dream, brothers, after telling you the first one. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told his father, we told this to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. His father did actually have a recognition that this might be from the Lord, and I shouldn't completely set this aside. His brothers, they hated him at this point in time. They were figuring out how do we get rid of him. They discounted his dream. They were like, why, why would you bring this to us? Clearly, you're one of the younger ones, we're not going to bow down to you. That's not how this works, right? Reuben was the oldest. But Jacob kept the saying in mind. It says he wore the robe of many colors, which most likely signified at this point as his father possibly choosing him to be the successor to lead the tribes. He was his favorite. It would have made sense. He should have maybe been his firstborn. That would have made sense. So he makes him this, the, you know, the Joseph in the technicolor robe, uh, the coat of colors. Um, but at this point in time, that's not helping the cause for his brothers. And so they hate him even more. And we recall that it, it just goes to show how much he really did love Rachel and how much he, how his brothers could have come to this idea. Imagine if, if it was actually fairly well known. It's well known enough to have been recorded in the Bible, right? That, that he, he was loved more than his brothers. And so that's damaging. And, and we could see where that root of pride begins to, to begins to fester and begin to come up. And that will set them on a pathway of family destruction. They were greedy. Why should Joseph be the chosen one? Who's he? He's the young brother that just goes out in the field and tells on us. And he dreams these crazy dreams. And we don't know what that's about. Why should he be the chosen one? Now we're going to move into a change of character. We begin to see Joseph's brothers stand in solidarity for Benjamin, the youngest and the only full brother of Joseph's, Joseph. Again, they decided that they were going to go back to the city and that they were going to join him, and they didn't have to do that. So at least at this point in time, they're like, okay, we did some bad stuff in the past. We're going to stand with Benjamin. Verse 14 says, When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? He's digging the trap in further. He's saying, that was my divination cup. Don't you know that I can see the future? Don't you know that I could see that you were going to do this? 
Of course he could see that. He's the one that set the trap. He knew it all along, <laughs> right? They didn't know that. They thought that. He was, they were like, okay, this guy can see the future. We don't know how this happened. There's money in our bags. There's a cup in our bag. We don't even know any of this, but clearly he can see the future. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Hang on to that phrase for a second. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also who is in, whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, the servant said, or Joseph said, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. He's given him another out right here. Let's analyze what he just said a second ago. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. What is he referring to? He's not referring to the cup that was in the bag because did they, were they guilty of stealing the bag? Absolutely not. They did, or the, excuse me, the cup that was in the bag. He didn't steal it. So he wasn't guilty of that. And he wouldn't have fessed up to being guilty of that unless he was. So this is referring back to their original sins of selling Joseph into slavery and then telling Jacob that he had been torn apart by wild animals. So now we begin to see that those past sins are coming up. We're beginning to see some character change. He's saying, God has found it out. Like God just found it out. Clearly, God has known all along, right? I, I would venture to say, being all-knowing and omnipotent, he knew the whole time. But this is like the telltale heart, that Ed Edgar Allan Poe. His, his, he's like, all right, I'm being found out here. Something's going on. I've got this guy, and he's like seeing the future, and, and I, you know, it's time to fess up. But it's interesting because he, he, he reaches back to that, that previous sin. The other interesting part was that um, Judah had made himself previously accountable to his father for the well-being of Benjamin, right? In the last chapter, he says, I, I can't even go unless you send Benjamin. I will take care of him. I will stand in his place. I promise that I will protect him. It's a full offering of self to stand with Benjamin, and that's really important because he probably wouldn't have done that for him previously. He's obviously having a change of character right? He's the little brother of the, the mom who he, you know, Jacob loved more, and then the little brother of Joseph who was the favorite, right? There's probably some, still some sandpaper involved in that relationship. Judah's referring to his original betrayal of Joseph more than 20 years ago. God has found out the guilt. That's what he's referring to. He's about to fess up to all this. We're going to reach back to Genesis 37:18. Since they saw him from afar, uh, speaking about Joseph, his brothers are speaking about Joseph, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They hated him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, clearly Reuben wasn't present for that. Reuben was the oldest. He rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to, him, to them, the brothers, shed no blood. Throw him into the pits here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And this was attempt, Reuben's attempt to rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the, the robe of many colors that he wore. And he took them and, he threw him in, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming to Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, 
on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, Judah's the one that said this, what profit is it of us if we kill our brother and conceal our blood? We should not kill our brother. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's put him into slavery instead. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. What a pious speech this is at this point in time. It's just amazing. And his brothers listened to him. They were listening to Judah. He was clearly the speaker. And then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the, to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Just as an aside, 20 shekels of silver is about 200 bucks uh, in today's money. So not a whole lot to, to get for your brother. This is what they, this is what they did. But Joseph's going to continue to set this up to get a full confession out of here. So that's the backstory. This is what they did to him. But, but Judah at this point is like, I got to come clean. And now we begin to see the beauty of a heart convicted, broken, and changing. It's interesting because the, the following passage is uh, the most words that Judah spoke. And in reading through a lot of the commentary, most of the commentary agree that this is um, described by theologians as just a beautiful display of great humility. It's actually where the, the true character change begins to take place. It's where he begins to realize, man, I've been rotten, and it's time for me to change my ways and, and, and live right. So verse 18 says, Then Judah went up to him and said, Please, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Recall back in a few chapters ago where their sheaves were about, are you to call us Lord? Yeah, he is at this point in time. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, have you a father and a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father and a brother, an old man and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for he should, if he should leave his father, his father would surely die. And then you said to your servants, unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again and buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If your youngest brother goes down, if our youngest brother goes down with us, then we will go, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. This is a really hard statement right here because he had more than one wife and he had more than two sons, but it just goes to show how much Jacob cared for Rachel, and for his two sons. You know that my wife bore me two sons. That's got to be hard to hear. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Did Jacob know that his son was not dead yet? No, they've been hiding this for a long time. He still thinks that his son was ripped apart by wild animals. And how rotten was that? And if we look back to the account that it talks about, it says that he couldn't even be consoled. He says, I will mourn until the day I die. That's how much he loved his son that was taken from him. It was a big deal. And they still had not told their father. 
I don't know if that would have helped at that point in time anyways, but God's plan is exacting. We're beginning to see that Judah, broken down and coming to the true realization of his father's love for Benjamin and for Joseph, he could at least see he's like, man, he loves them so much absolutely so much. He's beginning to see through all the pride. He's beginning to see through the the hatred and the anger of, I'm not the chosen one. Okay, I'm not the chosen one. It's time to get over it. But this is the point in time where they're beginning to get over it. His wife and his two sons. Oh, it is, that that would be hard to hear. Um, But it just goes to show how much he really, really placed on them. We're going to begin to see Judah's plea to be imprisoned in place of Benjamin. This is where true repentance to his father and his brother come down and true concern for his father. Remember previously, they're like, if, if we lose Benjamin, our father's going to die. He will be, that, that will hurt that much. And so we're beginning to see that, that, that concern that exists there. Verse 30 says, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, this is Judah speaking to to Joseph, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. This is a recognition of how much he cares for him. I can't go home without, without Benjamin. My father will die. Your lives are so bound together. Your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety to the boy of my father, saying, if I do not bring him back, then I shall bear the blame before my father for all my life. This is the best part. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. As a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see that the evil would find my father. Can you imagine how a broken heart now wants to replace a young boy and say, no, take me instead of him? Did Judah, was he guilty? Absolutely not guilty of what he had said, yet he was still willing to place his life in the place of his brothers. He cared for him that much. He recognized that. He's like, no, I can't go home. Because if I go home, my father will die. I will stay in his place. Take me. Why is this character change so, so important? When we move into what the, the fruit of a changed character is, what was, was there a significant cost involved in this? It was his life. He had family. He had riches. He had goats. He had land. He, had, or he was you know, running across the land all over the place. And, and his family wasn't going to get to become slaves with him. He was going to enslave himself for the rest of his life and, and remove himself from any other blessing, remove himself from anything else so that he could save the life of Benjamin. That's amazing to me because at this point in time, this is where the test was passed by him. This is exactly what Joseph was looking for. He was looking for true repentance. He was looking for him to say, no, I can't do this again. He had already done it before. They did it to Joseph before, sold him down the river, sold him to, into slavery, right? Never even told their father. How easy could it have been for him to say, okay, me and my brothers are going to go. But no, that character change was amazing. It was amazing. Why is this so important that Judah offers his, offers his life? 
for his brother. What is it that we know about the tribe of Judah? We call Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. I actually found that extremely interesting, having known that for a long time. But I had never really truly delved into it. Judah wasn't the oldest of the brothers, was he? Judah's wasn't, Judah wasn't the best of the brothers, clearly. He was one of the schemers. Obviously, we read previously about some of his misgivings and his misdealings. But through this character change, God is going to now place the lineage of Jesus through the tribe of Judah. That's amazing to me because it all, at least when I read this, I see that it all hinges on this moment right here. It hinges on the beauty of him coming and saying, take me. Don't take my brother. Don't take my brother. And what is he doing there? He's giving us a Christ-like image, right? Now, there's a difference, obviously. Judah had, you know, he had some misgivings, and, and um, Benjamin, you know, he wasn't not guilty, but we being guilty and Jesus being not guilty placed himself on the cross for us. And um, I was talking with Matt earlier, and that's going to be some of the things that he goes through in his Bible study, just talking about those pictures and those, those points in the Bible where we can reach back and we go, that was Jesus. Here's Jesus right here in the Old Testament, the book of beginnings, the very beginning. I love that we can find Jesus all over the place in the entire Bible. And people go, that's the Old Testament. I go, yep, whatever. Jesus is right here. He's right here. The tribe of Benjamin stuck with Judah along with when, when the tribes were um, leaving each other later on. Um, imagine that Benjamin was still there at that point in time when, when Judah was making an offering for him. So how, like, he's like, I'm done. I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm going to be enslaved for the rest of my life. But then his brother, who had probably previously been a rotten brother, comes forward and says, no, take me. Uh, what a relief. And what, now the bond that is created between those two, he says, you're willing to essentially die for me. You're willing to give all that you have for me. What an amazing, amazing picture of family. And so that bond had continued. I'm going to read through just a quick genealogy here to show how important that change of character is. This genealogy is uh, Matthew chapter 1, Abraham the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And I'm going to skip down to first, verse 16. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who called the Messiah. How important was this character change? He literally changed history. Jesus now comes from the tribe of Judah. And I believe that here is a big starting point for that. He changed his character. He said, I'm not willing to move on in this anymore. And God has chosen that tribe for the savior of the world. Is that a big deal? Is that character change a big deal? You better believe it is. The savior of the world comes from this tribe right here, based on this story in the very first quarter inch of the Bible. Mine's thicker because it has bigger print because I can't see anymore. <laughs> Revelation 5, 5 says, And the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus came from a tribe that was not the firstborn son. And Jesus came from a tribe that was not the priests or the Levites. And Jesus came from a tribe that was not from Joseph 
or the one who rescued his family out of famine and brought them so that they could be saved. It's important to understand that Jesus came from a tribe that was Judah, who we probably wouldn't have thought that earlier on reading about this guy. That wouldn't have made sense. Hebrews 7.11 says, Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named from the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is, a ne is necessarily a change in the law. For the one whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This has become more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. He who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent by the power of an indestructible life, for, witness, for it is witness of him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And Genesis 49, 10, just a few chapters later says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall the obedience of the peoples. To who? Jesus. The one who walked up the cross to Calvary to die for us that didn't deserve it while we were still yet sinners right here. I'm going to tell you what, character matters. Character changed Judah. Character made it so that his tribe is the descendant of the Savior of all the world. Do you think character matters? Amen. Yes, it does. Absolutely. When we change our character, we change the course of the future of our lives forever, forever and ever. Judah was a Christ-like offering for his brother. And that was extremely important, extremely important. He affected generations to come, so much so that this little church in Placerville, which is thousands of miles away from where this happened, thousands of years later, is talking about it in this book right here, the most important book that exists in the history of the world. Amen. It's written in here, character change. Amen. Yes. Thank you. Character matters. We must put off our pride, humble ourselves, and move forward in God's will with focus. It may just be that millions of people will retell your story for years to come. I'm going to tell you what, the best thing that, that, that I look at is, will my wife and my sons tell my story of a changed character when I, when I get older, when I'm not around? What really matters Will, will my sons tell a story of a changed man? I was hiking on a trail with Corbin the other day, my oldest, and he said, he said to me, Dad, he goes, I, he goes, I got to tell you something. I go, yeah? And he goes, there's been some significant change I just want to let you know about. He goes, because Asher had forgot to bring the dog food. It was something stupid like that. And he goes, Dad, years ago, you would have really got mad at me for that. And he goes, but he didn't even bat an eye. He just said, okay, well, we'll take care of it and we'll fix it. And I'm going to tell you the example. Just a small example of his son saying, Dad, I can see that you've changed your character, at least just in a small way. And that's what really matters for us. 
When your children, when children speak of their mothers, changed character. What an amazing woman. She had a storied past, changed her life, moved forward. And their father's the same thing. This is what it's about. And millions of people may tell your story for thousands of years to come. Amen.